Hello, everyone, and welcome to Grace Fellowship. We are so glad that you're here today as we look again into God's Word. Last weekend, we saw how that God speaks through Scripture. So much of God's will is found in God's Word. And generally speaking, it's the people who are the strongest in God's Word that are the clearest about God's will. But let's face it, so many of our day-to-day decisions, we can't get a chapter and a verse for them directly out of the Bible. I mean, what verse is actually going to guide me on whether I should get a Subaru or a Chevy or a Ford or a Honda or a Toyota, right? You're not going to get a verse for that in the Bible. Although one guy did say that as he was reading through the book of Acts, he came across this verse that says, and they were all together in one accord. So he went out and bought a Honda. But honestly, I mean, what verse is going to guide me and tell me directly that I should go into computer programming or which college I should go to or even which specific person I should marry? Now, I realize that that burst a bubble for some of you. I have found this very popular out there in the Christian subculture to kind of view the Bible as a crystal ball. And maybe some of you have actually been taught through the years that, you know what, no matter what decision you're facing, big or small, if you just search diligently enough in the scriptures, you'll find some little nugget, like a crystal ball, that'll tell you exactly what to do. One man I heard of was dating a woman named Grace, and their relationship was getting deeper, getting more serious, and he started to wonder, should I marry her? And so he was searching the scriptures, should I marry grace, should I marry grace? And then he came across that passage that says, my grace is sufficient for thee. And so he married her. The Bible is not a crystal ball. Please be careful in treating it in that way. But if we can't look to scripture in that way, what can we do? Well, that's what I want to talk to you about today. Last weekend, we saw that God speaks to us through Scripture. But today, I want to talk about what some have called that second voice of God, how God speaks to us through prayer. David prayed for guidance in Psalm 143 when he said, Show me the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. And then on in verse 10, he says, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your good spirit lead me on level ground. You see what he's doing? He's praying for both the knowledge of God's will and then for the willingness, once he knows it, to actually do it. We are responsible to ask God for guidance. And a failure to do so is very, very dangerous. You know, there's a passage in the Old Testament that to me is haunting. So please listen carefully, particularly if you're a leader out there today. Because as leaders, a lot more responsibility falls on you. And if you're a Christian leader or the leader of a corporation or some organization, 
There's so many crucial decisions that have long-term consequences. We need to seek guidance. Here's the story. God was leading his people, the Israelites, into the promised land just as he had promised. Joshua is their leader. And he's told them to go into this promised land and to expel the inhabitants. There's lots of reasons for that that I don't have time to go into right now. And so they were doing it. They were following God's game plan for them. And things were actually going quite well. They had had a couple of victories at Jericho and Ai. But the Gibeonites, this nation called Gibeon, who lived nearby where they were camping, they didn't want to be annihilated. And in a desperate attempt to escape annihilation and expulsion from the land, they came up with an ingenious plan. So with tattered, dusty clothes and with old provisions and stale food, they came marching toward the Israelite encampment. Their ruse was, their trick was that they were trying to make them think that they had come from a faraway country, so they wanted them to make a peace treaty with them. They didn't want them to know they just lived nearby. And their ruse worked. The trickery worked. And Joshua 9 verse 14 says, the men of Israel sampled their provisions but did not inquire of the Lord. Catch that phrase. They did not inquire of the Lord. In other words, they didn't pray about it. Scripture is clear that they were duped into a bad decision simply because they failed to pray and seek God for guidance. And it was just three days later that it all blew up in their faces and they realized what they had done by failing to seek guidance from God. Friends, that Old Testament story is a haunting reminder to anyone today of the perils of making a major decision without first praying to God for insight and wisdom. James puts it like this in James chapter 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But notice this next verse. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. I'll bet you face major decisions in your life. You're looking for guidance. You want to know which way you should go. The last thing you and I need is to be tossed about by the winds of indecision. We have a responsibility to ask God. Paul Little was a great apologist for the Christian faith, a very good theologian and thinker. And he tells a story about something that happened when he was a young man that marked him deeply. He says, at the Urbana Convention in 1948, Dr. Norton Sterrett asked, how many of you are, who are concerned about the will of God spend five minutes a day asking him to show you his will? Paul Little writes, it's as if somebody had grabbed me by the throat. At that time, I was an undergraduate concerned about what I should do when I graduated from the university. 
I was running around campus, going to this meeting, reading that book, trying to find somebody's little formula. One, two, three, four, a bell rings. And I was frustrated out of my mind, trying to figure out the will of God. I was doing everything but getting into the presence of God and asking him to show me. And then he goes on with these final words. May I ask you the same question? Do you spend even five minutes a day specifically asking God to show you? All of us as Christians would do well to take this question to heart. Praying for God's will is a daily responsibility and one for which the serious Christian must simply make time. Wow, I love that. And I believe Paul Little is absolutely right. God speaks to us through prayer. But now let me turn a major corner in this message and tell you where I want to go with this. Because if it is true, what we've just said, God speaks to us through prayer and we have a responsibility, therefore, to seek him in prayer and ask for his guidance. And if prayer is this wonderful tool, if it's like a royal telephone, if it's like a hotline to heaven where we can get guidance from God, here's my question. Why is it that Christians often disagree about God's will? And why is it that it's still so difficult at times to determine clearly the will of God? Have you ever wondered about that? I think that is a profound question. And here's the answer. The reason that Christians often disagree about the will of God and the reason that it's often so difficult to discern the will of God in certain areas, hear me, is because when it comes to this royal telephone, there's often static on the line. Does that ever happen with you and your telephone service? Deb and I sometimes will be trying to talk to each other on the telephone, but we're far away from each other. And maybe one of us is in a mountainous area or some region where there's not good cell coverage. You know where I'm going with this, right? And the call gets dropped. Just dropped. It's so frustrating. And we're going, whoa, whoa, what happened? Can you hear me now? Whoa, did you, oh, I didn't catch, I didn't catch your last sentence or two. And it's incredibly frustrating when the service is poor like that or when there's this, all, this static on the line. Well, sometimes it seems that way when we're trying to hear from God. By the way, we saw an example of that earlier in the series, in the second message, where I talked to you about Paul and Barnabas and how they disagreed on whether John Mark should be a part of their second missionary journey. And I read that and I go, you got to be kidding me. People as godly as the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Barnabas? you got to be kidding I mean, these are godly men. Paul wrote scripture, for goodness sakes. They're close to God. They're being guided by God. If they had major static on the line, is there any hope for me? How do we deal with the static on the line? And I'll say to you today, all God's children, not just me, not just Paul and Barnabas, all God's children have got static on the line. So let's spend the balance of our time dealing with that question. 
what causes it, and what do we do about it. So here we go. Let's jump in. First, what causes static on the line? Well, I'm going to present three primary causes. There may be more, but I think that these are three huge categories that create a sense of static that makes it difficult to hear from God in prayer. Number one is our sin, our sin. Now that one's huge. So if you're taking notes, please put a couple of stars by that one to make sure you know it's important. If you've got a highlighter, highlight it. If you don't have anything, prick your finger and bleed on it, please. Really, this one is huge. Our sin puts static on the line. What I'm saying to you is, just because we have a relationship with God does not necessarily mean we have a great relationship with God. Now, there's a lot of verses we could look at. I'm not going to take the time for the sake of of the economy of this message here, but I, I put some of the references in your notes. You can look these up. But here's the bottom line of what they say. Sin puts static on the line. Our sin separates us and causes us to kind of walk around and grope around, as it were, in darkness. Now, there are two types of sin. One is intentional sin. Can I tell you what that is? That's when you know there's something you ought not to do, but you do it anyway. Or it could be a sin of omission like, I know there's something I ought to be doing that I really ought to do, but I choose, fully knowing I ought to do it, I choose not to do it. Either way, intentional sin puts static on the line. Did you know, in fact, that with God's old covenant people, God sometimes denied guidance even to them? God spoke through his prophet Ezekiel in chapter 12, verse 2. And he said, son of man, you are living among a rebellious people. They have eyes to see but do not see and ears to hear but do not hear for they are a rebellious people. Hear me today. Where there is rebellion in the heart, guidance will be frustrated. It's just too much static on the line. Later, God said through Ezekiel in chapter 14, Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I let them inquire of me at all? What a provocative question. Do you see what God is asking there? He's going, look, with all the idolatry, with all the rebellion in their hearts. He's talking about his own people now. Just like we're God's people. They had a relationship with God. He's saying with all the sin that they're tolerating in their lives and they've stopped even struggling against, should I even allow them, God's asking, to come to me in prayer and to actually seek me for guidance in their lives? Here's a principle I've discovered in the Christian life. The more yielded and obedient to God I am, the clearer sense of guidance I'm typically going to have. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying up to this point. We all struggle with sin. Amen, amen, amen. Can we all say amen to that? Every believer I've ever known has a struggle with sin. 
If we had to be perfect to get our prayers answered, we'd all be dead meat. I hope you say amen to that. But, and this is huge, there is a difference between having an honest struggle with sin and just giving up on the struggle. And I'm concerned that too many of us who are seeking guidance from God have allowed intentional sin in our lives to just become like white noise. We don't even realize it's there anymore, but it's there. And we've stopped even struggling with it, and yet we still expect to have this clear guidance from God. The first type of sin is intentional. The second type is unintentional sin. Even when I don't know I'm messing with God's laws, if I'm messing with God's laws, hear this, it puts static on the line. Now, to really understand and appreciate what this is saying, you've got to understand that God's laws were never arbitrary. Every guideline, every law God ever gave was for our provision and our protection. And when we violate those guidelines God's given, those laws, those commands, it does damage. Let me illustrate this with a simple illustration. Let's suppose that here's a man long before the days when we understood the bad effects of asbestos, the dangers of it. This man works in asbestos day by day, handles it, breathes it in, is all around it, and he does that for a prolonged period of time, and he doesn't know about any of the dangers at all, and he, over time, contracts that particular lung disease that prolonged exposure to asbestos can cause, okay? But in another scenario, here's a man who discovers asbestos in an old house that he bought. And he's kind of refurbishing the house, and he realizes, wow, there's a lot of asbestos here, but it's going to cost way more than I want to pay to remove it properly, safely. I don't want to pay that. So fully knowing the dangers, he's read articles on the dangers of being exposed to asbestos and breathing it and handling it. He knows fully the dangers. He says, I'm going to do it myself without the proper gear without all of the safety measures. And in time, he too contracts that particular lung disease directly related to asbestos. I think you'll agree, those are two very different scenarios, right? The first one, we look at and go, ah, what an injustice. Man had no idea what he was dealing with. How sad. The second one we look at and go, yeah, that's sad too. But we want to go to that guy and go, dude, dude, what were you thinking? You knew better. You knew all about it. You knew the dangers and you went ahead and did it anyway. Please don't miss the point. Asbestos does its work whether you're aware of the dangers or not aware. And it's the same with sin. Let's say I'm a brand new Christian. I've never read the Bible in my life. But I've come to the Lord. I really am saved. I know the Lord. 
And boy, in my past life, there's been a lot of bad stuff. And people have done me wrong, and I've done people wrong. And honestly, I've got a truckload of bitterness and just baggage that I'm taking along. All kinds of emotional stuff, unforgiveness, roots of bitterness growing. I've got massive roots of bitterness in my life against all kinds of people, and I have not forgiven. Let me ask you a question. Is that going to impact my marriage? Big time. Is that going to impact my other relationships? Is that going to impact me physically, emotionally, and spiritually? Yes, yes, yes. Here's another situation. A Christ follower who's read the Bible for years, who've sat through messages at Grace, who's been in small groups and Bible studies where the idea of forgiveness has been talked about and how dangerous bitterness is and unforgiveness and the bad things that it does to us. And he too fails to forgive and refuses to forgive. <coughs> Question, is it going to impact his marriage? Is it going to impact other relationships? Is it going to impact him emotionally, physically, spiritually? Absolutely, in every single way. The people I know who are getting the best guidance from God are those who are keeping short accounts with God when it comes to sin. When we sin, we acknowledge it, we confess it, we receive forgiveness, and we never give up on that battle, that struggle against sin. Our sin, whether intentional or unintentional, hear me today, puts static on the line. And one of the major reasons we are frustrated with guidance is that we're going through life ignoring sin. It's become this white noise in the background. And we just have, don't understand why there's so much static on the line when it comes to accurately hearing from God. I told you there were three things. The first one is sin. The second one is our limited human understanding. What I mean by that is simply the fact that we are human and God is not. Now to illustrate, let me talk to you parents for just a moment. Parents, when you were raising your children or if you're in that stage right now of raising your kids, have you ever tried to explain something to one of your children and they just weren't old enough, wise enough, mature enough, developed enough to really understand what you were saying. Well, that's an interesting scenario, isn't it? You try to make them understand. You try to explain it. And it's fine if you have a compliant child. They usually go ahead and do it without understanding why. But if you've got that pushback kid, you know the one I'm talking about, who if they don't know why they're not about to budge or do anything, then it gets really fun. After a while, what do you do? <laughs> In your frustration of trying to help them understand the whys, you usually come to the point of going, Dad, gum it, because I said so. Do it. Because you just can't explain everything because of the limitations of age and maturity. I think it's the same way in our relationship with God. He's God, and we're not. And there's some things he tells us to do, and we ask why. But if he, even if he were to tell us, we wouldn't get it. Because we're human. 
You can't always explain to your child why he has to brush his teeth, why he needs to get a little bit of sleep, why he can't eat only candy for every single meal. It doesn't make sense in their world. So eventually you just go, because I'm dad. Oh, I swore I would never say it. I did. Some of you young parents are swearing you're going to never say it. You will. (laughs) It just goes with the territory. It comes with being human. That's why God says in Isaiah 55, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In other words, you can't get it all. It's your limited human understanding that's getting in the way. And with this static on the line, sometimes we catch what God says, but we don't know the why behind it. Here's the point you don't want to miss. Even when you get the what God says to do, but you don't understand the why behind it, the smart Christian obeys anyway. The smart Christian obeys anyway. The smart Christian obeys anyway, even when you don't know all the whys, because all of God's guidelines are there for our protection and our provision. I would urge you, as a follower of Jesus, not to fixate so much on those things you do not understand that he said to do. I would urge you to get your focus on those things you do understand. They're hard enough. That's a challenge enough to do what you clearly understand the Lord has told you to do. Well, the third thing that puts static on the line, that makes it difficult for us to hear from God in prayer, as wonderful as that privilege is, and as powerful as it is at times, the third thing is simply spiritual warfare. My sin puts some static on the line, my limited human understanding puts some, and what we're saying now is there's a huge third category called spiritual warfare. The fact, brothers and sisters, that we are involved in a real battle. Now, here's my concern. We live in a world where the worldview is largely humanistic, and most of us were schooled thoroughly in a purely humanistic worldview. What that means is that we don't have much of a category for the supernatural, We don't have too much of an understanding that, listen, there is a seen world that can often be measured with empirical measurements, but there's an unseen world that is just as real. That's a biblical worldview when you understand there's both real and unseen things, uh, both unseen and seen things going on. They're both real. And if you don't understand that, when I talk about spiritual warfare, you may just think, well, that's just like a video game. It seems real, but it's not. Well, that's just like paintball. You kind of get some of the rush of being in a real battle with real bullets, but at worst, you're just going to get a little pain on you. No, that's not what spiritual warfare is. Just last week, On June the 6th, we celebrated D-Day. 
In fact, it was the 75th anniversary of the landing at Normandy where the Allies began to go forward across Europe against the Nazi regime. And you know what? Some astute historians will make a statement like this. You'll hear it. Once the Allied forces, here's what they'll say. Once the Allied forces created a beachhead at Normandy, World War II was over. <laughs> you hear that and you go, what? I wonder how that sounds to the guy who's scratching and clawing his way across the sand with live bullets whizzing all around, with bombs going off and hand grenades and mortars, and he's seeing his buddy's bodies literally getting shredded. He's hearing cries of pain and seeing the agony of the real battle all around him. And he hears some historians say, the war was over. But you know what? In one sense, those historians are right. Because what they mean is, knowing all of the power and all of the determination and all of the resources behind the Allied powers, once they establish the beachhead there and resolve, we're going to march against the Nazi regime, there's a sense in which the war was over. It's just a matter of time. This is really more of a mop-up operation. But don't try to tell that to the soldiers on the field. This war is very real, and it's far from over. And you know what? You'll hear some Christians say from time to time, you know, when Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose again from the grave, the war was over. And in one sense, they're right. Because that was the winning blow that broke Satan's back. But listen, friends, the battle is still very real. There's still families getting ripped and shredded apart. There's still lives that are getting blown up. There's still fiery darts that are taking people down and out. This battle is not paintball. It's not some video game. In fact, you know what? Back in the ancient days, in that scene in heaven, if you've got God Almighty in one corner and Lucifer, the son of the morning, in the other corner, you'd think that that's like a no contest, right? That's not even a real fight. But when it came to the angels in heaven, you know what? And this says something to us about the beauty and the power of Lucifer and how powerful he was. One-third of the angels put their money on Lucifer and went with him. The battle is raging. It's not a little game. And the stakes are very high. So I want to show you now a couple of passages of Scripture to illustrate this principle of the warfare. They're both from the book of Daniel. The first one from Daniel chapter 9. And this is, by the way, the Daniel that is one of the best of the best. If there's ever a person you would think would have no static on the line, it would be Daniel. He's a godly man. He's living and representing the Lord beautifully in a foreign, very difficult situation. Look at what it says in chapter 9. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel... 
I have now come to give you insight and understanding. Catch this part now. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I, will, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Now, is that cool or what? Daniel gets an answer right away. It's like there's no static on the line here, man. And wouldn't that be great if all your prayers were like that? Lord, I've got a financial need. Boom, here's a check in the mail. Woo, you talk about an answer. Lord, I need some help with this. Boom, the answer comes. The phone rings. There's a breakthrough. Don't you wish all of your prayer experiences were like that one that Daniel had, where you just start praying and boom, there's the answer you're looking for. But we read on. In chapter 10, we see a very different scenario. Again, we're talking about the same godly Daniel who in chapter 9 got his prayers answered so swiftly and so clearly. But here in chapter 10, he's crying out to God in Babylonian captivity saying, God, you warned us that all this would happen, but I want to know when you're going to fulfill your promises to your people. What's going to happen in the future, God? Chapter 10, a hand touched me and sent me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you are highly esteemed. Consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you and stand up for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. Then he continued, do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. Sounding pretty good so far, right? Your words were heard from the very first day. And I've come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. That's talking about a spiritual battle, some principality or power. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, that's talking about Michael the archangel, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future for the vision concerns a time yet to come. Yikes! Does that play with your mind a little bit? Here's what's happening there. Daniel, when you started to pray, yeah, God dispatched an angel to give you the answer, but then there was this demonic spiritual warfare that went on, and so the answer you've been looking for has been delayed for three whole weeks. You go, how is that possible? That doesn't fit with my understanding of God Almighty. That doesn't fit with my understanding of how prayer works. But it happened. And so here God's pulling back the curtain just a little bit and saying, folks, I'm not going to show it all to you. You probably couldn't get it in your limited human understanding, but I want to show you a little bit of what's at stake as you pray. There is a spiritual battle going on, and it isn't paintball. The fiery darts are real, and the stakes are high. You say, well, pastor, what am I supposed to take away from this? I'll tell you one thing I'd take away. If you're praying for guidance, if you're praying for a breakthrough, and there's static on the line on day 20, I'm still going to be praying on day 21. 
And I'm not going to blame everything on my sin. I'm not going to blame it all on my limited human understanding. No, I'm going to understand fully that's a lot more complex than that. There's actually a real spiritual battle going on where forces are battling. Now, very quickly, how do we eliminate the static? I got a great answer for you. Walk in the light. Acknowledge sin when you sin. Confess it to God. Keep short accounts. Get in his word on a daily basis and seek sustenance and nourishment from the word of God. Pray to God regularly for his guidance in your life. Practice the presence of God. Live in his presence every day. Obey what he clearly tells you to do. And don't get fixated on what is not crystal clear. That's what I mean by just walking in the light. Live a healthy Christian life. That's the absolute best thing you can do to remove the static on the line. Just live a healthy Christian life. And number two, seek wise counsel. What can I do to eliminate as much static on the line as possible? I'm never going to eliminate it all. Because I'm a sinful person by nature and also I've got this limited human capacity and there's this massive spiritual warfare going on, unseen, so I'm never going to eliminate all the static, but how can I eliminate as much as possible? Walk in the light and seek wise counsel. Now since we're going to spend the entire weekend, next weekend, talking about that, And I don't want you to miss that message. I'm going to tell you how to choose your counselors wisely. And I'm going to tell you all the upsides and downsides of seeking godly counsel. But let me just say today, that's one of the reasons God never intended us to be Lone Ranger Christians. That's one of the reasons we at Grace urge you to build meaningful relationships that lead to spiritual growth. Because this journey was never meant to be taken alone. God wants you to be in fellowship with other believers. It's amazing the wise counsel they can bring into our lives and help eliminate some of that annoying static that is keeping us from hearing God clearly. Do you have those people in your life? Get ready next week. We're going to talk all about that and how these kinds of wise counselors in our lives can help us to get incredible breakthroughs. Prayer is an amazing privilege. And as one of the great men of God of the past said, the one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He cares nothing, fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless works, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. Father, help us to be people of prayer. Help us to learn from that haunting example in the Old Testament of how badly we can miss it when we fail to seek your guidance in prayer. Lord, so when it comes to the major decisions with long-term consequences, may we eliminate the static as much as we can so we can clearly hear from you. Thank you that you promised to direct our paths. Guide our steps and show us the way to go. We are so grateful. 
And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.